This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads on our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. If you'd like to join us in person, our talks take place at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. When we normally consider this word, saved, or a phrase about being saved, we are primarily looking at being saved in the sense of being rescued from such things as danger, disaster, or being discredited. But it can also be used in the sense of preventing an opponent like scoring. From, you know, especially in the role of sport, where the goalkeeper, for example, with football, may be preventing the opponent from scoring a goal. We can also be saved from temptation. But there are many everyday events where a person can refer to having been saved from harm, loss of possessions, loss of livelihood, loss of reputation or esteem. So what we're going to do in this short time is take a few of the many examples that are contained throughout Scripture. There's plenty to choose from, so what I'm mentioning on this occasion is just a very small sample. The first of these comes from Genesis chapter 47. Genesis 47, and returning to verse 23. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have brought you this day and your land for Pharaoh, Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants." When Joseph was in Egypt, Pharaoh had dreams relating to seven good years of crops, then seven years of famine. Joseph had interpreted these dreams for him. But he also recommended the course of action needed to fulfill the needs of the people to survive. Joseph was put in charge of gathering in the harvest during the good years. And then when the famine came to Egypt, not only did they have food to eat, but they then had the seed to sow when Joseph was able to distribute part of the stored harvests. Meanwhile, they had to sell possessions to buy food. So scarce was the resource. And now Joseph was able to give them hope of having their own crops again to provide their own sustenance. Joseph later showed his brothers that it was God who had led him to go into Egypt and consequently be in the position he was to manage the food supplies when the famine occurred. However, the Egyptians, as we read, recognised that Joseph had saved their lives by what he had done. And we ask the question, what greater thing could have been done for them at such a time than to provide sustenance, and then, towards the end, the hope of growing their own crops again? They really had great reasons to be grateful. 
Most people will have heard of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. There's even a musical work of that nature. In this next example, we shall consider the background to this event. For the reality is, God had made a promise to Abraham, when he was called Abram, about this well before it took place, even hundreds of years. We turn back in Genesis to chapter 15. Chapter 15 at verse 13. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Israel, who was also called Jacob, was Abraham's grandson. He and his family went down to Egypt when their own food supplies were depleted due to the famine. But when they eventually left Egypt, they had to cross the Red Sea, and Moses was guided by God as to what he had to do. The book of Exodus records him following the instruction to hold up his rod to part of the waters so all Israel could have a pathway to cross it. If we turn to Exodus chapter 14, we'll see there, by reading there, what followed once they were all safely across. Exodus 14, reading from, verses, from verse 27. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned, and covered the chariots, and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. What we see there is how the nation of Israel was transformed from one having to serve hardship under the Egyptians to being liberated from them by being brought back to their own land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac and to Jacob. From just a glimpse at Israel being saved, we therefore get the picture that this was a nation that should have been extremely grateful to the Lord for what he had done, but also recognising how the Lord was honouring his promises. We get a record of the joy and the gratitude of Moses in the very next chapter, and this is called the Song of Moses, a song that was taught to the Israelites and that was something they should never forget. Our next example is from the time of Saul and Jonathan, his son, and it comes from 1 Samuel 14. This was a time when there was war between Israel and the Philistines. Saul was sitting in his hometown 
with about 600 men at the time. The Philistines were not far away, so we read what is recorded of the actions of two men there. 1 Samuel 14, verses 6 and 7. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armour, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armour-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee. I, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Jonathan states that depending on how the Philistines would react, they would either retreat or advance in war against the Philistines. But the Philistines appear to fear that Israel, not just two men, were there to advance upon them. So we then go on to verse 12. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armour-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armour-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. But, and Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armour-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armour-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armour-bearer made was about twenty men, within, as it were, an half-acre of land, which is a yoke of oxen, might plough. The subsequent reaction was that, because of the noise from the Philistines, Saul and his men became aware that something was afoot, and they joined in with many others in fighting the Philistines. And the result of this engagement is summed up for us in just one small verse, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. Now if we were to read all of chapter 14, we would get a better picture of the faith of Jonathan in God's willingness to save, whether by few or many people. The Lord is therefore attributed to having saved Israel from the Philistines at a time when Israel had not yet conquered the land after coming out of Egypt. We'd also see how Jonathan was saved from the punishment of death. His father Saul had promised that anyone who ate anything before the Philistines had been overcome would be slain. And Jonathan, not, heard of that, not having heard of that, had already eaten. So overall, being saved by the Lord from the Philistines was a great step forward in Israel's conquest over them. And as we saw, the battle then could move to another location. But the people of Israel also recognised the part Jonathan played in them being saved, especially whilst his father Saul was still in his hometown, for they did not allow Saul to slay his own son Jonathan. We now turn to the New Testament. And we'll turn to Luke chapter 23. When Jesus was crucified, we read what various people had said whilst he was hanging on the cross. And we get one example of this in Luke 23 at verse 35. 
And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. Here is evidence, even whilst Jesus was hanging on the cross, how people recognised and acknowledged that within the ministry of Jesus, he had saved people. The initial thing is that he saved people from continuing suffering, from physical infirmities, like when he opened the eyes of the blind, when he made a lame man to walk. He healed lepers so that they were saved from being isolated from other people, as well as being freed from that disease. When he had compassion on the crowds who came to him, he saved them from going away from him hungry by miraculously feeding Firstly the 5,000, and then the 4,000. People were therefore healed of their infirmities and provided for their needs. Jesus' actions showed the greatness of the power that God had given to him, and that accompanied his teachings in ways that made people realise that they were with authority. We also have it recorded that he was not like the scribes. Indeed, he attributed his teachings to the Lord God, his Father. Now the greatest teachings about what it means to be saved form a continuing and developing theme of Scripture. In Genesis, after God had created Adam and Eve, they disobeyed the commandment to abstain from eating from just one tree. He had given them so much that they could have eaten that just this one tree was prohibited. Yet they disobeyed. And that's the first sin we have recorded by any human being. God had warned them that they would die if they disobeyed him. And they did. God could have caused them to die there and then. They realised they had sinned and made their own coverings of leaves to cover their nakedness. But that wasn't good enough. God clothed them using animal skins instead. And by this means, he established the principle that blood had to be shed as a covering for sinfulness and the sinful nature of men and women. In that sense, they were saved from immediate death and were able to continue to live their lives and enable the population to grow. God gave Moses directions as to the standards of life Israel were to lead, and that included the animal sacrifices, in order to not only act as a covering for sin, but also make the people of that nation aware of their continuing sinfulness and their need to do something about it. When they kept to God's laws and his standards of worship, things generally went well for Israel. If any of you have been following the reading plan that we have, you'll have been seeing how that Israel and Judah went up and down in their standards that they maintained, and so did how they went as far as their relationship with God was concerned. Yes, they would and did still sin and offer these sacrifices, but when they departed from God's ways, they were to suffer from the surrounding nations in many ways. It's well worthwhile reading the whole of Deuteronomy to see how God described to Israel 
how they would be blessed and be saved from surrounding nations' ills if they were obedient. But conversely, then a neglect of God's precepts would cause much sorrow, hardship, captivity, pestilence from these other nations. Deuteronomy chapter 28 in, in particular shows so forcibly that for them to be saved from all these troubles, they had to respect God's laws, his prescribed ways of worship to him as the one true God. However much animal sacrifices were offered as a covering for sin, there was still the inherent sinfulness of each person, together with its consequences of death. God's plan is shown many times in Scripture that the earth will be full of people who will delight to please him by the lives that they lead. He has no death, sorry, he has no delight in the deaths of wicked people. His plan is briefly outlined like this in one small verse. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will involve people who know, understand and have a desire to serve the living Lord God. Just consider how the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can be the means of being saved from everlasting death. Some of the most well-known verses in Scripture are contained in that book of John, chapter 3, at verse 16. Let's turn to them. John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Jesus, who is the only person ever recorded in Scripture as not having sinned, never retaliated to those who opposed or oppressed him. And even Peter could write of Christ, of him who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should deliver unto righteousness by stripes by whose stripes you were healed. And we have to remember that at that time he was writing to those who had been baptised and had shown their allegiance to trying to follow the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had also formed an assembly of people 
who would regularly meet to both worship the God who had called them and given them hope of life through the saving work of his son Jesus, but who also continually needed to be strengthened in their faith. When we consider that Jesus lived a perfect life, we have to ask the question, how does that affect us as far as being saved is concerned? There's not one of us that hasn't sinned, and due to that will, in the normal course of events, die. It's not a very pleasant thought, we know. But God has promised that Jesus will return to the earth to reign as a king over it. Those who will be in the kingdom will be people who delight to attempt to follow God's instructions as to how we can be saved from permanent death. For when Jesus returns, there will be people who will be raised from the dead. While some people believe we do not really die, they are misguided and are not believing in what we have been taught in these scriptures that have been given to us. Those who will be in the kingdom will be there to be of value in their service to the king. So we have to ask the question, how is it necessary to prepare for that time? We firstly must believe God's teachings about our nature, our sinfulness, but also God's gracious provision of his Son, who, having lived a perfect life, offered himself as a living sacrifice for the sins of those people who endeavour to follow his ways and his teachings. Before the disciples of Jesus went out to preach, after he had been raised from the grave, we've already read these words from Mark, but this is how he instructed them. He said to them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. We have a stark contrast that is given to us, either salvation or damnation. And this is indeed a call to wake up the hearers of the message. And from this it is clear that belief alone is not enough. There has to be the right sort of action as a result of that belief, and that is by being baptised in water and then living a life that matches up to those beliefs. I wonder how many of you noticed as we read through that chapter that Jesus gave this instruction to his disciples despite them not initially even having believed that he had been raised to life himself. This meant that their initial unbelief had to be overcome before they could preach the positive message about the work of the risen Christ. And as we read in the last verse of that chapter, the Lord worked with them in that work of the preaching. Really it's necessary to consider the act of the apostles as a whole record, to see examples of how that message of salvation was spread both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, how people responded with many being baptised. Baptism in itself is the prescribed way of associating, with, associating oneself with the life, death and resurrection of Christ and is the start of what is called a life in Christ. As Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, a person is either in Adam or in Christ. 
we're not told of any in-between stage. The big difference is that those who are in Christ have the hope of being saved from everlasting death and the prospect of being resurrected so as to be in God's kingdom. As Paul implied, we are of all men most miserable if we are in Adam, not having done anything at all about what God has done in providing the means of being saved from our mortal sinful state, so as to be able to live and work with those who really want to be in God's kingdom. To summarise then, we have seen that being saved can have a comparatively short-term effect whilst we are living now, or else it can have an everlasting effect on our lives. We have to make decisions regarding our path in life, and may they be such that we may be accounted amongst those for whom the Apostle Paul prayed when he wrote these words. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfil all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.